Last week I started a, a new series, and uh, Foundations of Hope. And, uh, you know, it's interesting how the Holy Spirit works things. We never had a plan this year uh, to do a series on hope. By the way, just so you know, there are some big churches where they plan their series for the year. We never do here at Southland. We've tried. We're just not smart enough. And uh, um, so a little week and a half ago or so, I'm sitting with Pastor Ray. He says, I think we need to do some kind of a pastoral series. We had no idea some of the things that were just about to happen. Last weekend, we announced a couple of deaths, uh, dear people in our church family. I was at a funeral this week, and, and, uh, and, and so it's just perfect time. It's how the Holy Spirit works things, right? And so we're doing a series on foundations of hope. How do you find hope? How do you overcome when uh, trials and storms hit in your life? How do you find hope? When that big wave, that cancer diagnosis sweeps over you, or someone you love dies, or there's a traumatic accident, how do you find hope? How do you overcome there? How do you go from being in a very dark place to being a place who has, where you have hope and joy and victory? And of course, uh, we don't just need hope for some of these traumatic things over here, like a cancer diagnosis or a traumatic death. It could be something more like you're sitting here today, and you're in a horrible marriage, and it's been horrible for many years, and you just, you don't see hope. You don't know how it can change or turn around. And so the question is, how do we find hope in tough times? And last week, we talked about the fact that it's not a formula. One of the things that disappoints me about much of the teaching that's in North America today is it's so formulaic. It's three steps to, to your miracle. It's pray this prayer. It's claim this verse. If you claim this verse for this problem and this verse for that problem and bind this demon and pray this prayer and all that sort of stuff. And you know, a lot of that practical stuff is perfectly good. But you know what? If it doesn't tie into the one thing, it doesn't matter because there is one thing. I talked about it last week. I'm going to talk about it again this week. I'm going to talk about it again next week. There is just one thing you do when you're in a crisis, when you're in a storm, and you need hope. You go into the presence of God, and you spend time with Him there. That's the only solution. Yes, it's good to go to a counselor, and we got, you know, Tim. You see Tim Ryan, or Grace Fast, or Donovan, or Stefan, or uh, me, if you're really desperate, and you need some advice or something. Uh, really desperate, okay? Just don't call me for anything. But, uh, but uh, it's good to see people. It's good to ask for advice. It's good to watch DVDs. But we've gotten to a place where it's all just self-help. You just do these three steps. Do these ten steps. And the point is, he's the God of the universe. And if he can't solve our problems, he's not worth following. If he can't solve our problems, no one can. Going to people will not solve your problems. It's going into the presence of God. That's where big problems get solved. That's where you get hope. That's where you overcome. And the closer you get to God and the more you get into his presence, the bigger he gets in your viewfinder, the smaller your problems start to get. That's how you find hope. It's the only way. Everything else is just window dressing. You know, uh, this past month, um, me and LaDawn and our three kids, we went on, on holidays as we do every year. We go to the same place, uh, Tobermory, Southern Ontario, beautiful place. It's, it's my happy place. Just thinking about it now makes me happy, okay? It's, I call it God's country. And, uh, and every year we do the same thing. We rent a, a rustic little cottage on a beach on Dunks Bay, which is just a little bay on Georgian Bay. And the water is is perfectly clear. It's so clear. I mean, you guys can't imagine. If you've only been in, in Manitoba water, yuck, okay? This is clear water. You can see down 40 or 50 feet, no problem, okay? And I know I'm really selling it to you, uh, I, but I don't actually want any of you to go there because I go there to get away from you. But anyway, that's... Uh, um, but every year we go to this little cottage on a beach and the water's clear 
and we had our own private little beach, just nice sand. And one of the things we like to do is we'll often go for walks along the beach and, and look at some of the other cottages and sometimes talk to some of the other cottages around there and stuff. And, and uh, so this year, there was one day in particular, we just, we went for a, a walk with the kids. There was nobody really else uh, out. We went for vacation later than usual. We were in September, so it was pretty empty. And uh, our two oldest, Joy and Charlie, they were, they were running ahead of us doing whatever it is that three and six-year-olds do, just being crazy, and they were about 10 or 15 yards ahead of us. And uh, I looked ahead, and about a quarter mile ahead, at the end of the beach, there was an older couple out on the beach in front of their cottage, and they were working on something that looked like a, a boat or something. I couldn't tell from how far we were. And they had a dog that was outside uh, playing around them. And now the thing you need to know about dogs, and my son Charlie, who is three years old, is, is Charlie is really scared of big dogs, okay? And when you're this big, all dogs are big, right? So he's pretty much scared of all dogs. And, uh, and so he was running, but he doesn't see his dog, and this dog sees us and starts to bound towards us, okay? And I don't know what kind of dog this is. I'm not an expert in dogs. I don't really like them. I just have kids, okay? And that's... <laughs> I don't need a dog yet on top of that. But uh, anyway, so these, these dogs run towards us. I, I don't know anything about dogs. It looked exactly like a cocker spaniel except about twice as tall. Someone told me that might be a cockapoo. I said, a cock a what? And uh, <laughs> anyway, so maybe it's a cockapoo. Anyway, this thing is running towards us along the beach. And I said to Ladon, because Charlie didn't notice this yet, him and his sister are still running around being crazy. I said to Ladon, this is going to be funny. Watch. And uh, <laughs> I'm a very caring dad. Anyway. So Charlie's running up ahead there, and I'm watching, and I'm already smirking, and and, I've got a big smile on my face, and he's running ahead about 10, 15 yards, his dog's getting closer and closer, and all of a sudden, Charlie catches the movement out of the corner of his eye, and you just see, you've never seen a body stick, he's just loose, he's having fun, and then just, and he's just like this. You just see him, stark terror, he turns around, stark terror on his face, okay? He's so terrified, he can't even think. Uh, Joy was standing in, in between me and him, and he's trying to get to me, and he can't get around her, he's trying to get around her like this. And he finally gets around her, and, and uh, Mr. Cockapoo is hot on his heels, just a savage dog wagging his tail and everything. And, uh, and Charlie covers that about 10 yards. I'm telling you, this kid is going to be an Olympic athlete someday. As long as the dog's chasing him, he's going to win gold. But he covered that 10 yards like a rocket. Those little legs were just moving. And he just leaped into his arms. I mean, just into my arms. Just his face, just terrified. But you know, the moment I picked him up, the moment I picked him up, the terror was gone. It was just the moment. I mean, he was terrified, terrified, terrified. I have him in his arms and in my arms, and right away, his whole body just goes, he's okay. And you know, the amazing thing about that is, I mean, why is he okay when he's in my arms? The reason is because, I mean, to him, when he's looking eye to eyeball with the dog, that's scary, right? But when, but when the dog is this big and daddy is this big, then you don't have anything to be afraid of when you're in daddy's arms, Yeah? See, it's all about our problems, and we lack hope in our problems. It's because it's, it's a comparative thing. We're scared of our problems because our problems are as big as us or bigger. I mean, when you get a cancer diagnosis, that thing, it looks like it's going to swallow you up. You're looking at that thing eyeball to eyeball, and it's scary. When your marriage is going to break up, that thing is going to swallow you whole. Someone dies, there's an accident. Those problems are really big. And so Charlie, just like we are in our problems, and he's looking at that dog eyeball to eyeball, that's scary. But when, you're, when the dog is this big, and daddy's this big, and you go into daddy's arms, then you're not scared anymore. And you know it's the exact same things with our problem, or, or it's the exact same thing with our problems and God. 
When you are looking at your problem eyeball to eyeball, it'll wipe you out every time. But if you will go into the arms of God, that cancer diagnosis, you say, I'm, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid what's going to happen to my family. But you go into the arms of the Father who has conquered death, who has made a way for a ma- an amazing life after death, and suddenly that cancer diagnosis starts to lose its sting, yeah? See, it's comparative size. There's no way around this. There's no, there's no way to get hope on your own thinking about God. It's only when you go to be with God and you're in his presence and he starts to fill the viewfinder and you go, oh, you are awesome, you are sovereign, you are loving, you are good. Only then do you begin to conquer your problems. And as he gets bigger and bigger, your problems get smaller and smaller. That's the only solution, only solution to our problems. Now, that's what I talked about all last week, and we talked about going to the presence of God. I realized after I had a number of conversations last week that uh, a number of people didn't know what I was talking about hardly when I talked about you've got to go into the presence of God. And, you know, that's a, that, that's a, it's a sad testament to our culture. You're not a bad person if you, if you don't know what that is, but many of us have been raised in church all of our lives. I bet you a big chunk of us who are here today went, have gone to church pretty much every week all of our lives, and we know all kinds of things about the Bible, and we've heard people talk about the Bible, and we've heard people talk about the presence of God, but many of us were raised in homes where our parents believed in the Bible, but we never actually saw mom or dad go into the presence of God. So we don't even know what to do. So of course we just turn to a self-help video or a DVD or a counselor. That's all we've seen anyone else do too. And so what I want to do, I just want to take a few minutes here today before I move on to who God is and where he is and some of those things we're going to talk about in the second half of this message. I want to make sure that you guys understand uh, the basics. What does it mean to go into the presence of God? And what I'm going to show you now is not rocket science. What I'm going to show you now is what the saints have done as long as there's been saints. As long as there's been people of God and there's been people of God having problems, this is what the people of God have done in order to solve their problems and to find hope and to overcome. It's only in the last couple of generations here in the West that Christians have instead turned to self-help messages and books and DVDs instead of God. Even though those books and DVDs are fine in and of themselves, they give some very good practical advice, but by themselves, apart from going to the presence of God, it's nothing. So what do you do to go into the presence of God? Well, the first thing, and we started to talk about this a little bit last week, is you've got to go into your prayer closet. I mean, it is true, and I know that you can pray. You can pray to God anytime, very quickly. You can be in the middle of the day at work, and something happens. You can throw up a quick emergency prayer, no problem. You can throw up worship. You can, you can do Thanksgiving in your car, whatever. You can pray to God anytime throughout the day. But you know when a crisis hits in your life and that big wave hits and there's trauma and there's darkness, just throwing up a quick little prayer here and there throughout the day isn't going to cut it in your soul. You're going to be flooded. You need to actually pull back. And this again, here in North America, we have lost this art. We have become so addicted to video games and TV and internet and Facebook and, and none of these things is bad in and of themselves but we've just ruined our attention spans. We don't know what it's like to just step back from life and actually just go into the presence of God. Not just fire up a quick microwave prayer but just to actually go and be with him. And so the first thing is you actually pull out of your life. It's early in the morning, it's late at night, it's whenever it is, but you actually pull back from everything you're doing and thinking and watching and working and you go into your prayer closet. Now you say, what is a prayer closet? Okay, what is a prayer closet? I had a number of conversations last week, I thought, I better talk about what that is. 
Because I know our traditional view is, we have a traditional view about what a prayer closet is. It's what we view a person with an intercessory gift. It's a person, you know, like Grace Fast or some of these prayer warriors we have in our church. And they can just go into a little room and shut the door, get on their knees, and they can pray for hours. Okay? And that's a gift God's given them. But you know what? Every single one of us here today is made differently. We have different abilities, different personalities, different ways of thinking, and we have different ways of praying. And I know many people who are frustrated because they try to do that way of praying, and they just can't do it. So when I talk about going into a prayer closet, I don't just mean the traditional, you know, little tiny room you go in there and kneel. Here's what I mean by a prayer closet. Every one of us, the way God has made you, because actually, you want to know this? God made you because he wants to meet with you. And he's got a special way of meeting with each and every one of you who is here today. And your prayer closet is whatever that place is, wherever that place is for you, where you go, where your mind has the least distractions. It's where your heart gets the quietest. So for some of you, I talked to a guy last week, and he was telling me, he's like, I try to pray, and I just can't pray, and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, the conversation just kind of wandered off that, and we talked a bit. And he comes around to, he's got this workshop at his place, and he works with his hands, and he makes things. And he said to me, and just kind of, you know, off the top of his head, he said, you know, when I'm in my workshop working with my hands and making things, he's like, that's, I have so many distractions in my mind. But when I'm in my workshop working on some of these things and making stuff with my hands, he's like, it's like, that's when I can think the clearest. And I looked at him, I said, that's your prayer closet. Your prayer closet is a special place. God has made you in a special way. And each of us has a place where we go. You might not have used it for prayer yet, but each of us has things we do and places we go where our mind is the least distracted. For some of you guys, it's the workshop out behind the garage. You need to go there for a couple hours. You need to do something with your hands and come into your prayer closet to be with God. For others of you, it's when you go for a drive. I talked to one guy uh, some time ago and, uh, and he, he was complaining. He said, every time you guys preach about prayer in the presence of God, it just frustrates me because I can't do it. And all day long, I just have thoughts in my, in my head and it, I'm just going a million miles an hour and blah, blah, blah. And, and so I just, you know, I just let him talk. And sure enough, later, the conversation is going other places. And, and he mentions, he's like, I really like to go. Uh, he had a motorbike. I like to go for, for uh, just a ride, just a ride on my bike. And he said, you know, when I'm on my bike, that's the, that's the only place where my mind is clear and I can think. And the rest of my life, it's just distraction, distraction, distraction. And I said, that's your prayer closet. You need to get on that bike more often and spend time on it more often. He said, can you tell my wife, please? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it is for you. But your prayer closet is a place. God made you in a special way. There's a place you can go. For some of you, it's a hike in the woods. For some of you, it's fishing. For others of you, it's more of a traditional prayer closet. It's a place in your room, in your, in your house or your basement, like it is for me. For me, my prayer closet is in the basement. That's where I went to be with God again this morning. Every morning, early in the morning, I go down there. There's a couch I sit on. Nobody else is awake. I've got my lamp. I've got my Bible, my journal, and, uh, and some, some worship music sometimes. And it's a place you go to be with God where your mind is quiet where your mind is least distracted and where it's clear. You go to your prayer closet. This is not just throwing up a prayer. When a crisis hits you in your life, you need to go somewhere to be with God, not just throw up prayers throughout the day. Okay? And you say, okay, well, what do I do when I get there? What do I do when I'm in my prayer closet? Okay, I'm out for a drive now. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, in the, I'm out for a hike. I'm in my basement, whatever it is. And again, this is not rocket science. Everything I'm telling you, this is what the people of God have always done as long as there's been people of God. You know what you do next? You pour out your heart to God. 
You just pour out your heart to God. You just tell him. You, and, I mean, if you have a hard time focusing, write. Have a piece of paper and a pen and write. Or be somewhere by yourself out in the forest or in your workshop. Talk it out. Say it out loud. Don't just think it in your head. But you can write. You can talk it out. But you pour your heart out to God. And you tell him how you're overwhelmed. Lord, I have been working at this marriage for six years and it's not changing. It's going to blow apart. I'm so, and I'm frustrated and I want to give up. Or you got a cancer diagnosis. Lord, I'm so afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to my family. I'm afraid of pain. I'm afraid of the treatments. And you pour out your heart to God. Directly, you to Him. Here, here in North America, it's like us Christians. We will pour out our hearts to everybody but God. And again, my question this whole weekend, I just keep thinking it in every message that I preach, is if, if we can't pour out our hearts to him in crisis, if he's not real enough for us to go into his presence and pour out our hearts to him in crisis, why follow him at all? Why come to church in good times if in a crisis he's not big enough for you to go to him and real enough for you to go and pour out your heart to him? That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You know what? God loves it. God loves it when his kids come to him and, and ask for help. He loves to be our strong defender. So you pour out your heart. I'm exhausted. I talked to a man last night. He said, why have all these disasters? And he just disaster after disaster after disaster over the last five years. Tears in his eyes. And I just prayed with him. I don't know why all those disasters are there. No counselor can give you those, those answers. He's either real or he's not. So you go to him into your prayer closet and you pour out your heart to him. And you tell him how frustrated and fearful and angry you are. You just pour it out. You say, well, what do I do after I'm done pouring it out? And you take as long as it takes. This is not a 20-second process. This is going to take some time. But I'll tell you what you do next. And again, it's what the saints have always done as long as there's been saints. You read throughout the scriptures. What do you do? You pour out your heart to God. And then what do you do? You wait upon the Lord. You wait upon the Lord. Prayer, we, oh, I cannot tell you how many books, it just disgusts me, that are written in the West. And it's all about these quick prayers. And yeah, there's a place for quick prayers, but here's a quick little prayer for you to pray. Here's a quick little verse for you to pray. That is not going to help you in a crisis. You need to go before the Lord like David and Moses and Abraham and all the saints over the last few thousand years and you go and you wait before the Lord in his presence. That's how you overcome. And it's only when you wait before him that you start to get a weighty sense of his sovereignty. He doesn't jump when you snap your fingers. You wait on him. You can't rush this part. I know some of you, you're thinking, well, how do I wait on the Lord? Because there's this idea like it's kind of like Eastern meditation. It's, I just, mm, and you're trying to get all the thoughts out of your brain. Let, let me tell you something about your brain. I know a little bit about human brains, okay? Uh, it is impossible for you to get all the thoughts out of your brain. Your brain was made to think. And it will always think. And the harder you try to keep it from thinking, the more distracted you'll be. Oh, shoot, I'm thinking. Oh, there's another thought. Lord, I can't hear your voice because I'm still thinking. And you're trying to blank out your brain. That is not what waiting before the Lord is. Waiting before the Lord is not blanking out your brain. Give up on blanking it out. You can't. It's impossible. Okay? Waiting on the Lord. You say, well, what am I doing when I'm waiting on the Lord? You're not trying to quiet your mind so much as you're trying to quiet your heart. So you say, what am I doing when I'm waiting on the Lord? You just keep doing whatever it is you were doing when you poured out your heart to him. If you were driving, you keep driving. 
If you're in your workshop working, you keep working. If you're out for a hike, keep walking. Okay? If you're in your basement, this is a time to just read scripture. You're not blanking out your brain. This isn't some kind of weird meditation. You're just sitting before the Lord. You can't make something happen. You can't make him talk. So you just go on with life in your prayer closet waiting for him. You read scripture. Journaling is a wonderful way to focus the mind. Some of you guys here, you're sitting here and you're thinking journaling is girly. It's not girly. It's a way to think, okay? And so you're, but I can't write. Who cares? Nobody's doing a spell check. Just pull out your pen and write. It'll focus your mind. But you write, you read, you listen to worship music, and you just wait there. That's all it is. That's what waiting is. And as you wait, and again, I, I cannot tell you, many of you have never experienced this. You have heard preachers talk about this. You have read books about it. You have seen DVD series about it, message series, the whole works. You know so much about waiting on the Lord, and some of you have never actually done it. But as you wait before the Lord and you're reading, what you'll find is the, is the peace of God will begin to steal over your soul. You came into this prayer time, and you were anxious, and you were fearful, and you were upset, and you were angry. But as you wait before the Lord, you poured out your heart to him, and now you're just waiting. You're reading, you're listening, you're driving, you're journaling, whatever it is. And as you wait before the Lord, this peace, the anxiety, the worries, the fears, start to just kind of fade away. And there's this peace that comes. Let me tell you, when the peace of God comes into your heart, that is already its own reward. It's worth, it's worth going into his presence. It's worth waiting on him just for the peace part. Psalm 46 verse 10 says this, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. You can know about God without being still, but you can't know him without being still. And it is like a plague, it is a disease on our Christianity in the West that many of us do not have any idea how to be still. And that's why we know lots about God, but we don't know him. And it's like Charlie up ahead on the beach. He can know about me. If I'm 10 yards behind him, that doesn't help him when, when, when Mr. Cockapoo is right in his face, right? It's only when he actually comes into my arms. It's not knowing about me. It's actually me picking him up. It's only when I pick him up, that's when the fear is gone. It's the same with us. And so you wait upon the Lord, and this peace comes. A stillness comes. Your mind isn't blank. You're still reading. In fact, your senses come alive. You're listening to worship music, and suddenly the words, you're just able to focus. Your mind is clear. Suddenly, I mean, you were reading and reading, and nothing was sticking. And suddenly, everything just feels meaty in the scriptures. Or you're journaling, and you're just kind of journaling whatever, and suddenly your mind is just sharp, and suddenly uh, profound thoughts are coming. And also, that's the peace of God. And as you wait there in the peace, as the peace comes here, so that is just one of the most wonderful things. And now the peace is there, and again, you can't rush this. This doesn't, this doesn't happen in 30 seconds or a minute or five minutes. It's like, I'm going to quickly get into the peace of God, and i got five minutes. No. It doesn't happen. You cannot rush being still. You cannot rush waiting on God. It's up to him. And depending on how frazzled you are and how unaccustomed to doing this you are, it may take half an hour or an hour or even an hour and a half. But whatever it takes, you just set it aside because he's the only solution to your problems. So you wait. And what happens is as you wait in the peace, there's this peace that comes over your heart. And if you continue to wait there and you're reading scripture, you're listening, you're drawing, whatever it is, as your mind is clear, then what comes next is the presence of God begins to dawn on your soul. It's not like a crazy experience necessarily. Sometimes it can be that every once in a while, but that's very rare, at least in my case. When I come into the presence of God, it's not like flash, all of a sudden there he is. No, it's like the sun coming up in the morning. 
Your heart gets quiet, and then you just feel his presence dawning on your soul. It's not a huge experience. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what it is. It's like you're, you, you know he's real in your head, and, but suddenly when you're in his presence, you go, he, he's real. And you go, he's close. And you have this sense of him. That's what the presence of God is. You have this sense of him. And I know a lot of people, they expect, you know, when you come to the presence of God, he's going to be just talking, talking, talking. Let me tell you something. He's not a 12-year-old schoolgirl. <laughs> and if you're here today and you're a 12-year-old schoolgirl, that's not an insult to you. Good, okay? In six years, I'm going to have one of them myself. But he's not a chatty Ann, okay? He's not coming in and you're just, oh, I'm in the presence of God. And you're just writing down words, stream of consciousness. No. He will speak to you. But the presence of God is about a lot more than speaking. It's much bigger than just words. The biggest thing I find is when I go into the presence of God, like I did this morning, as you wait there before him, the biggest thing that happens is as, the, as his presence begins to dawn on your soul, what you will feel is a heart shift. Your heart, it's just, that's all I, it's the only way I can describe it. There's a shift in your heart. And you came in anxious, angry, upset, fearful, whatever it is, and as you're in his presence, there's a shift. And what was all black to you before suddenly doesn't look black. All of a sudden you can see hope. I'll tell you, another thing that'll happen is when you go to God in crisis, often what happens is there's people that you're upset with, right? At least for me. I'm not perfect like all of you, right? So sometimes I'm mad at people, and that's part of my crisis. And I go there, and it's, I'm God. Oh, like punish them, cut them off, make them change, all sorts of stuff. And then you're waiting before the Lord. Heart shift, and the first thing you find out is, oh, wait, I was a big part of the problem. And you have a heart shift. And it's not like lots of words coming in your head. It's a heart shift. And suddenly you feel love. There's hope where there was no hope before. And usually when I come into the presence of God, there's confession. Because the first thing is, oh, I've been looking at this so wrong. Lord, I can't believe I've been so petty. I can't believe I've been doubting you. I can't believe I've been so unbelieving. And there's confession because your heart has shifted and you're seeing things now from God's perspective. That heart shift is absolutely essential. It's what we all need so badly. And the closer you press into God, you get this heart shift and he becomes more and more real and bigger and bigger and your problems start to fall back further and further. That's the answer to your problems. You know, there's a famous hymn about this, one of the most famous hymns ever written, right? It's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, we've all sung that song many, many times. And we sing it in church. Oh, it's so true. Turn your eyes on Jesus. How many of us never actually go home, go into the prayer closet, and turn our eyes on him? It's only when you actually look at him. You pull aside, you look at him, and you get a revelation of who he is. And as you look at his glory, it's not just his goodness. It's his glory. It's his strength. It's his power. It's his awesomeness. It's his majesty. And as you look at that, you go, oh, I have nothing to worry about. And the things of this world grow strangely dim. But you actually have to do it. You know, I want to give you a little background to this song. We sing it so much. Uh, this past week, I was doing a lot of research, and I was reading a lot about Helen Lemel, the, the woman who wrote this song. And she knew what she was talking about when she wrote this song. She knew what she was talking about when she wrote this song. She was, uh, Helen was born in 1863 in England to uh, uh, a Christian family. Her dad was a pastor, godly family. And so she grew up knowing, knowing about God. And when she was 12 years old, they, her family emigrated to America. 
and, uh, and they were involved in the church, and it turns out that Helen was immensely talented. She wrote uh, well over 70 hymns by the end of her life. She wrote music. She had an incredibly beautiful voice, and as a young woman, she was in much demand all over the American Midwest. She was traveling all around churches for concerts and leading worship and singing all sorts of stuff, and people just loved her, an amazing voice, and this ministry. And so, and then on top of that, she married a wealthy European aristocrat. And every, I mean, you just think, Helen has everything she could ever want. She's got a happy marriage. She's got money. She's got a ministry. People love her. She's got lots of talent. And, and she's got everything, right? Well, in, in her 30s, she lost everything. Uh, she contracted some kind of a condition. I don't know what it was. But anyway, it caused her to lose her eyesight. She was totally blind. She went totally blind. Uh, her husband, great guy that he was, uh, decided he didn't want to take care of a blind woman for the rest of his life, totally abandoned her, just left her, that's it, nothing, gone. She ends up, this woman goes from all kinds of promise, traveling all over, wealthy husband, happy marriage, all sorts of stuff, she ends up living in a one-room little apartment, destitute, blind, and alone in Seattle, Washington, it's paid for by the county. And it was exactly during that time in 1918 that she wrote this song. She was visiting with a missionary friend one day, and as she was visiting with him, she got this song. Unlike, it was unlike any of the other songs she ever wrote. She was talking to him in the middle of the conversation. She said, and the Holy Spirit just gave her the song. She, in her heart, could hear this song. She could hear voices singing it. She could hear the melody. She could hear the words over and over and over and over again in her heart. It was singing again and again. And the Holy Spirit was telling her, Helen, turn your eyes. She's blind at this point. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And she took that song to heart and she lived that for the rest of her life. She ended up living a lot longer yet. She lived many decades, lived to be 98 years old. And for the rest of her life, she was known as an active, joyful woman. She lost everything. How do you be joyful in that? Healthy person, you can see everything. Now you're completely blind. You're living destitute and poor. You're not traveling. You're not doing all this sort of stuff. You lost your husband. He abandoned you. How can you be happy? Because you look at Jesus instead of your problems. And she was famous for always saying, people would ask her, how are you doing, Helen? And she would always answer the same thing, I'm doing good in the things that count. So she ended her life well, and she lived this truth. But you know, every Christian, everything I've told you last week and so far this week, everything I've told you is we all know this. Every self-respecting Christian knows the answer. Yes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I mean, if I gave a test to every Christian in North America, and question number one, is God big enough and strong enough to defeat any problem in your life? And we would all go, duh, yes. 100% we all got it right. And if I asked another question on that test and it said, uh, you know, it, can God, is he powerful enough, is he amazing enough to give you hope and joy in the midst of the darkest, worst situation? And we would all say, duh, yes. Two to two. 100% right. Every self-respecting Christian in North America gets the test 100% right. And so my question then is, why are so many Christians living in despair and defeat, broken by their problems? I'll tell you why. Because there's a really, really big difference between knowing something intellectually in your head and knowing it experientially. There's a really big difference between those two things. See, we know our problems experientially, don't we? We know our problems experientially. If you're here today and you have a marriage problem, that's not an intellectual problem. It's not like you go in your head, I have a marriage problem, la-di-da, and you just go about your life. 
No, if you have a marriage problem, it's real to you. It's real in the things, in the way you talk to each other, you and your spouse, in the things you do, in the things you feel. You live that problem every day. It is a real problem. And if you get a cancer diagnosis, not an intellectual problem, is it? That's a real problem. You feel it in the everyday. It changes your schedule. You've got appointments. You've got treatments. It changes your body. You feel incredibly sick. You're drained. Your hair can fall out. Your teeth can fall out. All kinds of stuff can happen in these treatments. It's a real concrete problem. Guess why so many Christians are getting dashed against the rocks? Because our experience of our problems is real, experiential. But our knowledge of God is only intellectual. And the experiential crushes the intellectual every time. As long as your knowledge of God is only about God, oh yeah, I know the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, but you've never actually gone into his presence and looked at him, your problems will overwhelm you every time. It's only when you actually, nobody can talk to this, you know, I can tell you about this, but you have to do it yourself. It's only when you actually go into his presence and you're actually close to him and you're actually looking at him, it's only as your knowledge of God becomes experiential and it matches your knowledge of your problems, that's when you overcome. Amen. I'm just giving you the secret to life. Let's shift gears now, okay? So far, get into the presence of God. Rest of this series, still get into the presence of God, but I'm going to talk now about changing your picture of him. Who is this God that we are supposed to go into his presence? Who is this God that we are supposed to go into his presence? See, I believe that another part of our problem is that our picture of God here in our culture has become utterly pathetic. Our picture of God has become utterly pathetic. And that's part of the reason why our prayer life is so pathetic. Why would you go and spend time with a God like that who you don't think can have any impact on your real situation? If you believed in your heart of hearts that God was a real God that has real power, that can do real things, you would have no trouble motivation to pray in a crisis. But the fact of the matter is, in our heart of hearts, we don't think of God that way. Our picture of God has become utterly pathetic. You say, what do you mean it's become utterly pathetic? Let me make it more specific. And each of us has different ways that we think about God wrongly, but there's one kind of primary way I want to talk about that kind of infects us in the West. When we think about God, we think about God in vague, fuzzy, and ethereal terms. How do you like that word? Okay? Ethereal terms. What is ethereal? Let me explain that. This pulpit is material, right? It is solid. Uh, if I push it over, it's going to make a loud... Uh, noise. It's going to make a loud bang. If it falls on you, it's going to hurt. It's real. Ethereal is the opposite of that. Ethereal is something I can't get my hands on. It's, it's spiritual. It's like a puff of air. You can't really grab it. Okay, that's ethereal. When we in North America think of God, we think of him in vague, fuzzy, and ethereal terms. And guess what? We, we just think of him literally, we would never say this, but we think of him like a puff of air. We think of God, he's everywhere at once, right? He's in my house plant. He's in my cat. He's in a cor dusty cobweb corner over there. God's just kind of everywhere. He's just this, this wind, okay? Now, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like a wind. There's no question. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. And John 3, verse 8, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like a wind. But that's how we think of God. We just think of God as like the wind. He's everywhere at once. Well, guess what? When you have a concrete, real problem, but your picture of God is not concrete or real. It's just vague and fuzzy and ethereal. Guess what? This one smashes your image of God every time. And you don't, a God like this doesn't help you with problems that are real and concrete. 
A.W. Tozer put it this way about our picture of God, one of the great men of the 20th century, one of the great men of God of the 20th century. He said this, it is my opinion that the Christian concept, that is picture, of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. All the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that he is, what he is like, and what we as moral beings must do about him. We need to change our picture of God. We need to change it from vague, fuzzy, spiritual, and ethereal to concrete and real. Because everywhere in the Bible, again, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. He's everywhere. He's like the wind. But God the Father, God the Son, everywhere the Bible talks about God, he is a concrete, real being in a real place. Everywhere. And until we start thinking of him in that, ter- in that way, we'll never have a foundation of hope to deal with concrete, real problems. But everywhere in the Bible, we just think, he's everywhere, right? Some of you are thinking, I'm blaspheming. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, what do they do with God? They're walking in the garden with him in the cool of the day. They're not walking with a puff of air. They're walking with a person. Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets caught up into the throne room of God. He sees a real throne and a real God on that throne with a real robe. And it is so awesome. It is so glorious. It is so overwhelming. He says, woe is me, I am ruined. He didn't see nothing. He didn't just see some kind of windy substance. He saw something. Jesus and Paul, throughout the New Testament, over and over and over again, Jesus before his death, Paul after his death. What did they say? After Jesus' resurrection, he went up to be in heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father. You can't sit down at the right hand of a puff of air. He is a real concrete being in a real place. And it's only when you start to think of him in real concrete terms, you can't attach glory and power and majesty. You can't think of nothing having those attributes. You can't think of an invisible piece of air as being majestic, glorious. It's only when you realize that he is a real being, a real king, and that he is all-powerful. It's only when you get that kind of robust thinking in your head that you can see a concrete being who is all-powerful and the maker of the universe, and he can conquer those concrete problems over there. So where is God? You know, this vague thinking of God has affected our prayers because we think of him as so vague. When we go to prayer, this is why we can't get excited about prayer. We go to prayer, we don't know where our prayers are going, and we don't know where God is. We think he's just everywhere, he's anywhere, which really means for us that he's nowhere. And so we just go to prayer and we just throw out prayers, hoping they'll land somewhere. And that is not how God is. Yes, his spirit is everywhere with us, but God the Father is somewhere. He's a real being and he's somewhere right now. So the question I want to ask now, and we'll spend the rest of our time here and we'll move into it again next week, is I want to ask the question, where is God right now? Because it's only when you get that setting that you can start to see in your mind and in your heart who he is and how amazing he is and you can have hope in your dark times. So where is God right now? When you pray, where are your prayers going? Where are you praying to and who is this God who is there? Well, the Bible talks to us lots about where God is. Lots. Problem is that most of us have just read with closed eyes. We kind of, we spiritualize everything and we miss much of what the Bible says. There is tons and tons of scripture about where God is. It's hard for me to even know where to start in this message. Lots. 
Because God, and the reason there's lots is because the Holy Spirit wanted us to know where God is. It's important to God that we know where he is. So when you pray, where are your prayers going, and where is God? And what does that place look like? Well, let's look at it. Again, I hardly know where to start, so I'm just kind of picking a verse, and we'll just go through a bunch. Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Where is God? Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Again, you're going to find, and I, and I can only scratch the surface here today, but, and I'm going to show you a bunch more, but this is all over the scriptures, old and new, that God is somewhere right now. And Micah the prophet says, I want you all to pay attention because the Lord is a, is a witness against us, but he's not just a witness against us from everywhere. He is a witness against us from somewhere. He is a witness against us from his holy temple. See, God is in a real building right now. God the Father is in a real building that he built with his own hands. And I don't have time to go there right now. You can write it down. Psalm 104 and Amos chapter 9 both talk about him building this building. It's a huge building, his temple. It's a huge complex Psalm 104 and Amos 9 talk about him laying its beams. It's got real beams. It's a real physical place in a real city he built, and it exists right now. And that's where God is sitting. It's a concrete place. He's a concrete God in a, in a real place right now at this time. And, and again, and, and I'm, we're going to look at a bunch more verses here. I just, you have to understand this because our thinking is Greek, not biblical. We think like Plato and Aristotle, not like the Bible. We think of heaven ethereal, spiritual, windy. Little girl boys in dresses with wings, that's angels. Like this, yuck. They're disgusted by it. It's like, don't put that thing on your Christmas tree. That's not what we look like, Okay. That is not what an angel is, okay? We think of heaven as clouds and, oh, floating around. Yuck. Real place. When you think of heaven, it's a real city. Let me, I don't have time. Rabbit trail. Isaiah 6. You can write this down too. Isaiah 6, famous passage. We sing a song about it, right? Isaiah 6, Isaiah goes up into the temple, again the temple. You'll find it all over scripture. Always God is in his holy temple in heaven, which is a city. And Isaiah goes up there and and you, you never hear people preaching about this part of it, but I'm just fixated on this one part, right? Isaiah goes up there, he sees the, the, the God's robe and the throne, and woe is me, I'm ruined. And what happens next? What happens next? An angel takes tongs and takes out a coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips, right? Now, have you ever thought about this? Why does the angel use a pair of tongs to take out the coals? I'll tell you why. Because the coals are hot, and the angel will get burned if he touches them. Is that not profound? Heaven is a real place. There's heat there. There's hot. The angels have to use tongs to pick up coals. It's a real place. It's not little girl boys in dresses, wings and harps. Real place. And as long as you think of heaven like the Greeks do, and it's just this cloudy, ethereal place, and it's not a concrete place, you won't want to go there to pray to that God to deal with your real concrete problems. And another thing you won't want to do is you won't want to die and go there because that's not appealing to anyone. It is a real city. And there's this massive temple complex in this city, not built by human hands, it says in Hebrews, because God built it himself. He laid its beams. It's got wood. It's got stone. It's got marble. It's got all that stuff. It's a real building. 
And there's a massive throne room in it. You can read about it in Revelation 4 and Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. There's a massive throne in it, and God is sitting there right now, and that's where he looks down on the world from. You say, wow, you pulled a lot out of that one verse. There's lots of verses that are informing that. Okay, I'm, I'm just touching. Let's just go through a few more here. I want to show you that this, there's just the sheer number of Scripture passages that talk about this. It's very important to God that we know where he is. And what that place is like, it'll change. By the way, when you get this picture of who God is and where he is and that he's a real being in a real place, it'll revolutionize your prayer life because you're not just throwing your prayers out to the wind. Habakkuk 2 verse 20, but the Lord is where? Where is the Lord? In his holy temple. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Psalm 11, 4. So we've heard from Micah. We've heard from Habakkuk. Let's look at David. David talks about this lots. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. So he's sitting in his holy temple. And here we have the throne and the temple brought together. So the throne room is in the temple, in heaven. And heaven again. By the way, again, rabbit trail. Heaven is not. We talk about heaven as this different dimension, this different realm. That's nowhere in Scripture. Everywhere in the Bible, and I'm going to talk about this a bit more next week, I hope. Everywhere in the Bible talks about heaven. It does not talk about heaven as another realm, as another dimension. It's a created place. It's just like it, the heavens were created around the same time that the earth was created, that the, our universe was created. And all throughout the Bible, it's not a different realm. There's a continuity between earth and heaven. This is why in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gets taken away to heaven. What does he do? He goes up to heaven. Why does he go up, up to heaven? Because heaven is up there somewhere. Is this not profound? If heaven was just another dimension, he would have just disappeared. But he didn't. He went up. He was going somewhere to a real place. And the disciples all watched him going up like this, and an angel is sitting beside them, and he pokes him with the elbow, and he says, what are you guys looking at? What do you mean, what are we looking at? Jesus just went up into the sky. And the angel says, just the same way you saw him go is the same way he's going to come back down. Heaven is a real place somewhere. And it's a real city. And Revelation 21, John sees the real city. It's an actual place. Real bricks and mortar and trees and grass and dirt. And it's coming down to earth. But it's really out there somewhere. And it's a real physical place. And the Lord is in this physical place, this building that he's built in the city he's built on this awesome throne. And all uh, authority in the universe is, comes out of this throne. For everything that happens, the events of human history and the course of human history and the things that happen even with the laws of physics is all determined at that throne. You say, well, what does this have to do with hope? What does this have to do with my prayer life? Well, when you're in distress... This changes the way you pray when you realize that it's a real place and a real God, it's real power who actually made this universe, and he's not just a spirit. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. So some of you are here today, and you're in distress. David is in distress. Psalm 18 was written. He is praising God because uh, God just rescued him from another attempt of Saul in his life. It's another attempt. And so for 20 years, if you don't know the background, David and his men run from Saul for 20 years. Saul is trying to kill him. People are trying to betray David and backstab him and give him up to Saul. He's afraid for his family. He's got kids. He's got, I was going to say a wife and kids, but he's got wives and kids. Unfortunately, that was his bad. But anyway, he's got a family he's worried about. So he's stressed out. And he has many low points in those 20 years. Many. 
And he was a genius at waiting on the Lord. Every time. David, it's not 1-800-counselor-help-me. You know, David would go to the Lord. Every time he went to the Lord. Now I want you to see this. He, he, there's very important this here. Psalm 18.6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. When David went to God in distress, I want you to notice, his prayer life was founded on something. He knew where God was. He had a very clear picture in his mind. When David was in distress and his life was, was on the line and he was worried for his family and things are really dark, he didn't just go to prayer and just hopefully somewhere this prayer is going to land. He knew where his prayers were going from his temple. He had a clear picture in his mind of where God was, a physical place. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry reached his ears. That'll change your prayer life when you get a concrete prayer life rather than a vague one. Now, some of you, I just want to deal with one objection here. Some of you might have an objection. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Chris, that's not talking about a temple in heaven. It's talking about the earthly temple in Jerusalem. Does that sound reasonable to some of you? Let me tell you how I know 100% it's wrong, okay? There was no earthly temple when David wrote this in Jerusalem. Isn't that true? I mean, just correct me if I'm wrong, but who built the temple? Solomon. Solomon was David's son. That got built after David. David, <laughs> David doesn't have a picture in his mind of an earthly temple. There's no earthly temple in Jerusalem yet. He's thinking about one thing. He's thinking about the heavenly temple. And that's where his prayers are going, and that's where his prayers are being heard from. Like I said, this will revolutionize your prayer life. It'll take your prayer life from being abstract to real place. When you go to prayer, you can actually stand there with this picture firmly implanted in your mind. I'm in a real place before a real God. And he has authority over the universe. Revelation 8, verses 2 to 5. Then I, so there's the Apostle John, saw the seven angels who stand before God. Now, let me just uh, stop you for just a moment. Uh, revelation, obviously, is uh, end time. Revelation, John uh, is seeing stuff that's going to happen in the end times. But he's seeing more than just stuff that will happen in the end times because Revelation 4, Jesus says, come up here, John, I'm going to show you some stuff. And, then he, and he brings John up to heaven, okay? The heavenly city, it's a real place. It's not some, it's not some different dimension or realm. It's a real place. And Jesus brings him up there, there's a door. He opens the door, they go through the door. Jesus brings him into the temple. Then Jesus brings him into the throne room and he spends all of chapter 4 describing this throne room. It's not symbolic language, it's a real place. Hundreds of thousands of angels who are physical, powerful beings in attendance on God, sitting on his throne. And John is just overwhelmed. He can't even believe what he's seeing. He can't even hardly put it into words. It's a real place that exists right now. Now, the cool thing is, again, the focus of this vision is things that are going to happen in the end. But a lot of the stuff he sees in the throne room is stuff that's already happening now. It's always going on. And here, we're going to get a little picture of some of that. Because he says, then I saw the seven angels who stand. Not who will stand, but who are standing there right now. So there's many angels doing many different things in the throne room. And it's how it's all organized and stuff. We don't all know. There's many of them there listening to God's commands, take, carrying them out. But there's seven powerful angels that they stand before God. Okay? And in the end times, they're going to be given seven trumpets, which is the trumpet judgments. But anyway, that's not what I'm interested in right now. Uh, but what I'm interested in is what they're doing before the throne. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, which is like a bowl of incense. And he was given much incense to offer. Now look at this. With the prayers of all the saints. All the saints. Not just the future ones. All the saints. If you're a follower of Jesus right now, you're included in that all the saints. Did you know you were in the Bible? You're in the Bible right there. 
And there are angels before God. And he, they offer up the, the prayers of the saints are going to a real place. Your prayers aren't just going out into the wind and they're lost and I forgot about them and who knows what happened to them and will God remember them? That's not what's happening to your prayers. When you go into the presence of God and you have a crisis and you need God's help and you cry out to him, help me Lord, that prayer goes before a real throne and there's angels there who gather it up and they mix it with incense and they bring it before the Lord. And he's sitting on a real throne. And by the way, God loves it when you pray. God loves it when you pray. I talked to a man last week, I was praying with him, and he said, I never ask God for anything because I know he's so, so busy and there's so many big things and I don't, nothing in my life is that. And Revelation 8, with the prayers of all the saints and mixing with incense, God's got angels mixing them together. He loves it when your prayers come up before him. He loves it. He's not too busy for that. He lives for that. With the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Next screen. Thanks, Charmaine. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Here's what I want you to notice. When you pray, God always answers. There's always a response. Every time. The angel collects up the prayers. It's in a real place. Then he takes fire and he puts fire back down on the earth. There's always a response. When God's people pray, he always hears. It always goes to a real place. And he always pours out fire in response. There's always a power response. Now, he won't always answer the way you wanted him to. Okay? Certainly. We, we don't, how do we with our puny minds know how to always pray the right way? But he always answers. And let me tell you this too. This I find so encouraging. It doesn't matter to God if you pray the wrong prayer. If you want help from him, he's going to always give you what's best. Sometimes people, they get all worried. I don't know, should I be praying this or this? You know what I tell people? Just go to God and pray it. Pray something. Pray. You say, I want to be healed. Then just pray to be healed. You know what? You go to God with a good heart and you say, Lord, please heal me. You know what? Maybe for you it's not the best thing to be healed. But he will answer your prayer with the best thing. He always answers. Now, you might not see it right away. You might not see it right away. Remember Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel prays for 21 days. He's praying and fasting. Doesn't seem to say, see anything. Then an angel finally breaks through and says, Daniel, the first day you prayed, God sent an answer. But the reason you haven't seen it is because there's something happening right now that you can't see. There is a titanic battle going on between powerful angelic princes, the demonic prince of Persia and the archangel Michael. And so you didn't see the answer of your prayer, but what was happening is while you were praying, power was being released into that struggle, which is affecting world events. And you may be praying. When you pray, that is precious to God. It's not how powerful you are, it's how powerful He is. And He loves you. And when you pray, He's always responding. Now you might be praying for someone, and you don't see it on the outside, but I tell you, every time you pray, stuff is being planted in there. Stuff is cracking. Stuff is crumbling. Stuff is happening. It might take a few years for you to see it on the outside, but every time you pray, that is going to a real place, and God is responding because He loves you. That's awesome. And when you begin to get this picture in your head that your prayers are real things and God is in a real place, you need to, that, this is how we need to picture it. When you go to prayer, you are standing before the throne in the center of the universe. All power and authority goes out from there. You say, Chris, you're, you're exaggerating, you know, imagining the throne and all sorts sort of stuff. No, that's one of the main points of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is all about this, going to the throne room. Hebrews 4, 16, let me show you one verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to where? Help me. Draw near to where? 
the throne. Writer of Hebrews said, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne. Don't just go into some vague prayer and you don't know where it's going. He says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne. There is only one throne that matters in the universe. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me tell you two reasons why you can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. First reason, because God loves you and Jesus paid for your sins and if you've confessed your sins, you're allowed to go into that throne room. You're allowed. You're allowed to go into the very place, the control center for everything that has been made. And not only are you allowed, you are welcomed. Let us with confidence go into that throne. When you go to prayer, you can say with confidence, Lord, I am coming into your throne room. You don't even have to wait for him to invite you. He's already invited you in his word. And the second reason you can have confidence is because he is all-powerful. I mean, it's not just enough. Many preachers today are preaching that God is loving. He is loving. But if he's a loving wimp, he hears no confidence in a crisis. But the amazing thing about God is he's not just loving. He's loving and he's all-powerful, glorious, and ama- just awesome. And so you can with confidence go into that throne room knowing that no problem is anything more than tiny, teeny, microscopically puny in comparison to him. And you can go with confidence knowing that he answers every time. Even if you can't see it right away, and even if it doesn't get answered quite the way you asked it, it'll be the best thing. So long as you pray. Let me finish with this. We've all heard the saying, it's all about who you know, right? It's all about who you know. If you want to get anything done in this world, it's, it's all about who you know. It's, I mean, if you want something from the government or you want something from the city or from a bank or from a business, it's all about who you know, right? If you need some money, you need a decision made. If you have to fill out a form and hand it out to so-and-so who has to give it to so-and-so who has to give it to so-and-so and has to go through 15 miles of bureaucracy and on the other end is one guy who actually signs the check, your chances of getting what you need in the timely manner you need it are very small. But if you know someone, doesn't, isn't that how things move in this world? I mean, if the guy who signs the check is your second cousin's best friend's ex-wife or whatever and you're good friends with them, you can just go and talk to them directly, Right? I mean, if they like you, if the one with the authority likes you and you know them personally, if they're a buddy, if it's a buddy, you just go there, you make your case, it happens now, right? It's all about who you know. But if you have to hand things through intermediaries all the way up the chain, then your chances go down. You know what's the amazing thing about the throne room of God? The organizational structure of God in the universe, his organizational structure is totally flat. It's seven billion people and God, and anyone can go to him direct. If you love Jesus, you don't hand your request to intermediary, 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 intermediary. Two months later, God gets and goes, oh, it's too late. I can't answer this anymore anyway. You go straight into his throne room. You go right to the, that's the one who signs the checks for human history. You go directly to him and you say, Lord, this is my issue. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. I want to just leave you with these three passages. God wants us to imagine this throne room. Revelation 4, Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6. Read those this week. Begin to picture in your mind what the throne room of God is like because that's where you're going when you pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we just come before you. Father, my desire, God, is that the people in this room today are going to come and spend time in your throne room this week. 
Give us a spirit of prayer. Give us a revelation that each person here today who decides to make a go of it, Father, I pray that you're going to meet them with a sweet and special sense of your presence, that they are going to have an experience with you this week. Pray that you would bring a spirit of prayer onto this church, Lord, that we will as a body love to come into your presence and love to spend time with you. And Father, I pray for us to have many miracle stories as people begin to overcome in their dark times by, going, by walking with you. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.